I have this sort of internal philosophy that you're never done. The minute you think you're done, the minute you think you've mastered something, you've perfected something, then you're not growing anymore. Basketball was already at a high level before Michael Jordan turned up and then Kobe Bryant came and now, you know, we have Steph Curry. My ideal is that we should always be raising the bar. We should be celebrating when we achieve a milestone or overachieve a milestone, but then that's an opportunity to take it up a notch. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. Why do you say you like market corrections? What do you mean by that? Oh, I could, well, the market was so overheated. Yeah. And as a public company, like from a retention standpoint, we had people who were so attracted to a late stage pre-IPO guaranteed pop startup. And a lot of that we knew was irrational, but you can't tell employees who just want to be in an IPO that. Yeah. And so we saw employees leave to go to low quality opportunities that did not turn out well for them. And I think there's just a little more rational thinking around valuations. So you thought retention was harder in the crazy growth times? Retention was definitely harder between the 20, the great resignation. Even though stock price was going up? Yeah. Meaning like now the inverse problem that you have, I mean, there's always a problem. I mean, there's always a challenge, but there was like this irrational sense of, well, now that I've been with a company through its IPO and it's public to go build my own value, I need to go through another IPO. I have to keep getting these pops in order to create wealth, uh-huh. right? And it's very short-term thinking. Like you're not thinking about how do I build value long-term? How do I build my career long-term? It's like, can I do four IPOs in eight years and build a portfolio? <laughs> right. It's a very different thinking than I want to build my career with a great company that's on a great mission and has a purpose, etc. Yeah. And we saw private companies that did not have to worry about path to profitability or weren't concerned with path to profitability driving the cost of employees up significantly, you know, with both cash and private equity or options that may or may not be liquid ever, may or may not have value ever in a way that was kind of getting out of control. And so now we're seeing that settle down a lot. I imagine it's even more frustrating for you because I know that you have a bit of a reputation for investing in people and your leaders (laughs) and you actually have like a bone to pick with a lot of tech companies that don't invest enough in their people and their leaders. And so I would imagine that the problem becomes exacerbated when you're investing and then they're leaving. Yeah. From a long-term perspective, my concern is much bigger, which is when you look forward 10 or 20 years, who will be the great leaders of the largest, most influential, most innovative companies in the tech industry if no one is developing those leaders? If the only way they can learn is by moving from one job to the next, learning through doing, maybe they get lucky and they have great managers who coach them well, etc. But if you look back 100 years or 50 years, you had the GEs, the Procter & Gamble's, the IBM's that had great learning and development programs that were 
institutionalizing management skills, leadership skills, financial acumen, et cetera. And we don't have many companies in the tech industry that are investing in that kind of development for leaders. And so when you've got these leaders that stick around for 18 months or two and a half years and then go to the next thing, yeah, they're getting great experience and they're getting new experiences and they're probably up-leveling the scope of work they do, et cetera. But we see leaders across the industry who don't have some of the fundamental management skills that you would expect, how to run a performance review, how to do a behavioral interview. And so PagerDuty is investing heavily in what I think of as foundational management and leadership upskilling and development, like long-term development. But I am concerned that we haven't seen that be either democratized for all people to potentially become leaders or we're relying heavily on tertiary education. Do you have to go get your MBA or go to exec ed to get that? As opposed to companies really building leadership academies inside their organizations and employees seeing that as part of their career growth and their career path with their employer. 100%. And you were the beneficiary of that at P&G. I am still pulling from things I learned in my first five years out of college with Procter & Gamble. Many guests of the show who are legends have gone to P&G, like uh, Scott Cook. I think Steve Case went to P&G. I'm pretty sure Ballmer went to P&G. Absolutely. Like there's a long pedigree (laughs) of people. Meg Whitman. Meg Whitman. We can keep going. (laughs) That are pulling on this foundation of Procter & Gamble. Yes. Do you think people are spoiled over the last 10 years? Maybe you're not allowed to say because you're Jen Tejada, but maybe I could say, I think people are spoiled by maybe a bit of riches over the last 10 years. And I think it's created this weird sense of entitlement that has manifested into jumping around every year, every two years, not sticking with it. Do you agree with that? There's this great book that Patrick Lencioni wrote called The Motive. I think he published it a couple of years ago, and I just thought it was super timely because one of the things he talks about in the book is this shift from what I grew up with, which is responsibility-centered leadership. The idea that leadership is a privilege and an obligation and a deep responsibility and something that you are both fortunate to be given the opportunity, but you are incredibly responsible to deliver upon. To this emerging model, which is reward-centered leadership, I want to be a leader for the trappings, the title, the power, the visibility for my ego, as opposed to because I see it as a calling, a responsibility, a way to use my skills and my gifts to make a business better, to develop people, to create value for our shareholders. And I think that is in part because we've been in a very long growth cycle, a very long positive market. We have a couple of generations of workers that haven't seen a significant setback or massive market deterioration. As a result, like those types of obstacles, whether it's being part of a family that doesn't have the financial capability to do whatever you want or be part of an economy that isn't always strong or be in an emerging economy. When you don't experience those sort of setbacks and those obstacles, you don't develop the resilience and the grit to learn how to fail, to learn from your failures, to fail fast. And today, employees aren't even staying at companies long enough to fail. (laughs) And so how are they learning before they move on to the next thing? When I'm interviewing and looking at the performance and the development paths for our people, I'm always thinking about 
the why. What's their motivation? What drives them? What keeps the fire burning in them? Where's the hunger? And how resilient are they? How perseverant are they? Do they demonstrate grit in everything they do? Because I've been around in this business long enough to know that things aren't sunny every day and that the market's not going to be amazing forever and that we have to be in a position to be resilient and demonstrate that grit for all of our stakeholders, not just for our employees, for our customers, for our shareholders, for our partners, for the communities that we're in. I think that's never been more important than now. Have you always had this perspective? Always. Since I mean, you were a kid? I grew up in a family that valued hard work. I'm from the Midwest. My dad was Filipino. Like, I think all of us had jobs before we were seven. My brother and I had like a paper route when I was seven. We get up in the basically the middle of the night, like 4 a.m. in the snow and walk and deliver papers in our neighborhood. And every kid in my family was expected to contribute, not just to the family, but to our community, whether it was church or school or raising money for the American Heart Association. Work ethic was expected, wasn't necessarily praised or applauded unless it didn't show up. And resilience, like being able to, I'm famous for saying to my now 17 year old, suck it up, buttercup, like get up, like what, you know? She must love that. So you had a rough time, like get up. And she does notice that that's not what her peers' parents are saying to them. Like, she's actually like, oh, so-and-so is crying in the locker room, or (laughs) we would not accept that. So I also think that years of giving out participation trophies, like, oh, you everybody gets a trophy. Everybody wins. Like if everybody wins, how do you learn how to be a good loser? How do you learn how to be a great sports person? I think it's something that like we all need to be reflecting on. How do we build resilience and grit in young people? How we teach people how to fail, not just make it okay to fail, but teach people how to fail, do it gracefully, learn from it, move on, get better, get stronger. Because that's part of the reason I look for resilient and gritty people is because they tend to have an inner strength that I think really serves the people around them. Was conversation for you at the dinner table achievement oriented? Meaning with your mother and father and your, you have two brothers, right? I have a lot of siblings. Have I have one siblings. brother, two sisters, three stepbrothers and one stepsister. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> and were you all at the dinner table? Did you even fit at the dinner table? Later in life, yes. But, um, but when you were younger, was it achievement oriented? What was the topic du jour with your mom, dad, Family. I think it was more contribution oriented. What have you done for the people around you today? How did you engage in class and make the discussion richer? Who have you helped today to be a better person? How have you contributed to your school, to your team, etc.? And I have always been a kid who put a lot of pressure on myself. So I don't think my parents felt like they had to do that. If anything, it was about helping me find balance and giving me the confidence to believe that I could be anything or do anything that I wanted to be as long as I was willing to put in the time to demonstrate I could meet a steep learning curve and to pick myself up when I stumbled along the way. And did you learn work ethic from watching your folks? Like, oh, yeah. what, what did your mom and dad do? Well, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but part-time, we didn't have nannies and 
Uber. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> she somehow got us everywhere. And sometimes it was like, well, if you want to take violin lessons, you're going to have to ride your bike because I can't pick you up. No one turned up at my soccer practices or all of my games. I mean, in this day and age, like I try to make, I would say 80% of my daughter's sporting events like that did not when you're a kid from a big family in the midwest like you're lucky if like if a parent shows up it's like a celebrity appearance and our house was always chaotic like we always had friends over other families kids over somebody who needed a meal you know if you didn't grab your lunch quick enough in the morning maybe there wasn't lunch like we were also expected to be incredibly self-sufficient i mean that's probably one of the things i appreciate the most about my upbringing was that i was taught to be self-sufficient and independent. And, you know, it's allowed me to take risks in my career, to move out of the country, to do some of the things that I've done that maybe if I felt like I needed support from my family or needed to be closer to them, I wouldn't have opened my eyes to. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. You went to University of Michigan to get your undergrad, right? Yes, the best university on the planet. Okay, fun fact, I was born in Ann Arbor. I was, no way. Yes, I was born in Arbor. I went to high school in a little town called Jackson. Okay, I so, wish I could relate to yeah. anything Michigan and Arbor related. I was so young that I barely remember it, but... Well, I like you better just knowing that. That's my claim to fame. Yes. That's my claim to fame with you. Then you went to Procter & Gamble and you had a great five-year run there. During that time, if it's okay, I'd love to ask you, going back to your family, you lost your father, is that right? Yeah. You were 23? Yeah, it was, I mean, it's still... When I think back on my life, one of the most impactful thing that happened to me and, you know, probably one of the most difficult things that I've ever had to go through to go through it young. And my siblings were even younger. My younger siblings were teenagers at the time and at home. And my dad passed away suddenly in a scuba diving accident in the Cayman Islands. He was there on a business trip. He had been a diver for many years. He was, in fact, buddied with the dive master. It was a clean dive. And it was just one of those things where the perfect storm of maybe his blood pressure was a little elevated. Maybe he was congested. Like, who knows? But he surfaced, was talking, and then immediately suffered a cardiac event and didn't make it to shore. And I was in my first year out of college, living in Cleveland, Ohio, working for P&G by myself because we had a day off. It was President's Day. So I always have a moment of reflection on President's Day now. And my family was spread out literally all over the world. So when I got the call that this had happened, I immediately sprung into action on finding my siblings, notifying them, making sure they were okay, checking in on my mom, etc. And something I remember about that period was how important my direct managers and my skip level manager at P&G were to me, how supportive they were, just how quietly present they were in all of that because I had to get home that afternoon. I don't remember even some of the things that happened in the successive days after finding out because I was organizing things and you know just trying to take care of everybody. But several people from Procter & Gamble traveled to this town, Jackson, Michigan, and showed up for the memorial service and then were there for me throughout my grieving process. And for an independent person to realize that how important that help and that support was, you know, maybe I didn't recognize until later. Was your instinct to become big sister at that point and great daughter to your 
mother. It's kind of my only mode of operation. (laughs) Like when the shit hits the fan, my immediate instinct is to figure out how to deal with the shit and make sure everybody else has what they need and keep the balls rolling. Sometimes I feel like I don't fill up my cup before I try and fill others up, which ends up being a little bit destructive in ways that I don't see now, but that like often show up later. Does that happen to you? One of the great lessons was put your own oxygen mask on first. And what I've realized as I've gotten older and gained more experience is part of helping myself is to help others. Like I am soothed by the act of serving others in a crisis. It is something that's intellectually stimulating for me, believe it or not. I mean, I saw this in the pandemic. It's something that I do see as almost an inert responsibility. I mean, I just can't imagine not behaving that way, but I have learned to do a better job of being aware of my own mental and physical wellness. In the case of when my dad passed away, I was literally a machine for the first kind of three months after he died. I Procter & Gamble supported me in moving back to Michigan. I undertook a lot of effort to try and get my family into a good place and be closer to them. And then one day when I was out meeting with customers, I had, I think what you would describe as something of a breakdown. I got home from work and just sort of collapsed. And again, it was my unit manager, I'll never forget his name, Mike Ziddle, knocked on my door and found me and made me call employee assistance, <laughs> like the 1-800 number. <laughs> and uh, I went to see a therapist. This is my first experience ever even talking to a therapist. And uh, he kind of made me do it. And I, now I, I openly talk about how important therapy can be, how important it is to look after your wellness. We talk about it in town halls. I'm a huge proponent of employee assistance programs because, you know, this was something that sort of helped me pick myself up when I wasn't doing well. And now I I like to not let it get that far along. You know, I try and take care of myself uh, and be really aware about how I'm feeling. Yeah, but can you tell This is why Ariana Huffington started her new company, right? Is because Thrive is because she just collapsed because she really couldn't tell. There was very few signals because she just went into machine mode, right? And it was sequential problem solving. And when you're so deep in the problem solving, it becomes very difficult to feel your body. Yes. Right? It's very cerebral. I have been known to say things like, I can sleep when I'm dead (laughs) or I'm on a run to failure maintenance program. And... It is the truest thing. Like I will literally run until my body fails me. And for example, I had to have back surgery the day we filed our S1. We had to wait till I came out of anesthesia and everything to sign the filing. But I literally did the roadshow having to be really careful because I was just a couple weeks post-op. I mean, and it's an example of where I will run until my body says, you have to stop. When I got into my late 40s, I decided this is silly. And part of this was being a working mom. Like I get up in the morning and I work for my family and then I go to work and I work for my customers and my shareholders and my employees. And then I go home and I try and be a good wife and a good sister and a good daughter. And I don't really believe in work-life balance because I don't think it's possible. I believe in work-life integration. But what I found over the years was that I neglected and myself in really being proactive about my health and self-care. This idea that like, well, I can just go, 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 go until I can't, and then I'll 
stop because I have to. And then I'll go, 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 go again until something breaks. Now it's like I protect my morning workout as if it was the golden hour. (laughs) I try and make sure that I don't have a meeting that starts before 9 a.m. So I have time to check in on people, to take care of my daughter and make sure she gets off to a good start with the day, to connect to my husband, to check on my team members, etc. And then I let the day take its hold because it sort of is a living organism. It has a sort of life of its own. I find you can control how your day starts better than you can control how your day ends when you're a CEO. What's funny is my male peers were already doing this. Like they were not missing their workouts because their stay-at-home partners were getting kids off to school, et cetera. And we know that working women still bear a more significant burden at home, you know, in terms of the unpaid labor that goes on in the household. I'm very lucky that my partner is super helpful around the house, but he's also a busy exec and there's a lot of time right now he's in Australia. There's a lot of time when he's traveling and I'm home on my own. And last week I was in Lisbon visiting our team and doing Web Summit and he was holding down the fort at home. So it did take me a long time to learn to take care of myself. And I really respect when I see younger people putting their health and their fitness first, because I think that's a, a good example of putting on your own oxygen mask before you try and help others. You said something, I wake up and I work for my family. Can you unpack that? <laughs> I often think of myself as a plate spinner. You know, I'm spinning a lot of plates. There's the company, my customers, and my husband, my children, my mother, who's in her late 70s, etc. And there are some that can't afford to drop, and there are some that can't. And when I am at home, I want to be present. My family is my primary stakeholder. I don't want to be looking at work texts at the same time my daughter is trying to tell me about what she's worried about in her day. And so when I say I work for my family, it's like I want to apply the same level of focus and joy and emotional energy and discipline discipline, because I love my job. (laughs) I don't see my job as a burden. So to me, they're both things that I love, but the people around me, my family, my friends, they're the most important. They're the fine china in that plate spinning exercise. So by managing the first part of my day first, it's like putting them first in a little way every day. Have you had to learn to be able to drop plates? Oh, yeah. As a kid, I probably suffered from perfect girl syndrome, like wanting everything to be perfect, wanting everybody to be happy, wanting everyone to approve. People would probably laugh at that now because sometimes I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, let's just get this done or let's not let perfect spoil good. But I definitely, that was a journey. Yeah, I'm learning how to drop plates now. Even something so innocuous as responding to people. I feel some burden of guilt that I haven't responded to someone, whether that's personal or professional. And now I'm like, no, I'm going on Do Not Disturb. I'm going to go on it for three hours. And all I'm going to do is focus on whatever task I have at hand. And then after I'm like, wow, it turns out like the world didn't burn down because Jubin didn't respond to XYZ person. And so it's hard. I think it's hard for an overachiever to not let any plates just fall. Yeah. The problem is if you don't let the Ikea plates fall, then you put the fine china at risk. I don't think anybody is going to look back on their life and say, I should have worked an extra 10 hours or I should have gotten an extraordinary performance mark instead of an exceeds. They're going to look back and say, how did my loved ones enjoy their lives? Like, did I spend my time with the people I care about the most in the best possible way? Did I have the impact on people that I was hoping to have? Did I make the most of my own potential on this earth? 
as I've gotten to study you, I really admire you as a CEO. And you're running this badass company that continues to kill it. One of the things that I was really curious to hear from you is does it get frustrating? Every article that I would read about you was that you're a badass woman CEO. Going back <laughs> to the comment that you made earlier about like, hey, like we have all these responsibilities and blah, 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 blah. I wanted to know your reflection on that. Is that a weird thing that you can't just be the badass CEO? Well, thank you for saying that, first of all. And I'm only successful because of the people I surround myself with. Sure. There's nothing that I do that is independent in its result or, or impact. And I, But isn't I'm, it just weird? Well, I'll tell you what. Like, I have mixed feelings about it. On one hand... I feel a responsibility to fly the flag for women and underrepresented people everywhere. And so if visibility to the fact that I am a person who performs well as a leader and delivers returns to shareholders and builds great products for customers and grows great leaders and great people and designs a great culture, and I happen to be a woman and that's good for other women because you can't be what you can't see, yeah. then I'm okay with that. But I, it is incredibly frustrating when that's the first thing someone wants to talk about. How does it feel to be a woman in enterprise SaaS? How does it feel to be one of the only women as a public company CEO? And I'm like, why don't you ask me, how does it feel to be a company that's performing the way we're coming? How does it feel to be a leader that 10X to business? How does it feel, you know, I mean, it's, so that is just subconscious bias, Yeah. right? And my team's really conscious of it and protective around it. They probably briefed you on it. <laughs> yeah, they did. But I was kind of like, okay, I get it. Like, yeah. I understand. But as I went into the research, yeah. I just couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the headlines that always associated those two words together. It's unconscious bias. That it's was really the, surprising to me. By the way, I think bias is often born in good intent. I don't think there's any intention to discriminate against me because I'm a woman. I think it's more about people thinking that highlighting it is a good thing or being curious about it because that someone once told me I, I was the purple squirrel in the tech industry. Like there's a curiosity when you see something you don't see every day. And of course it's okay to ask about it. And I'm just a huge fan of intellectual curiosity, but I do think there's also an opportunity for the media and for others to kind of check that bias and say, wait, this person's earned their seat as a CEO, as a board member, as a board chair. Let's talk to them about the context and the foundation of their business and their leadership outcomes. Let's talk about their people and their products and the innovation and the impact they're having on the world in a way that's equitable yeah. to the way we talk to other great leaders. Yeah. I also understand the counter argument of like, you hold the flag. I get it. Like, I understand there is good intent there. I was just surprised, honestly. I just didn't see that coming when I was researching it. And so I think if you talk to other women leaders out there, you'll hear a very similar thing. I hear it when I read it Yeah, in the headlines is when I was like, whoa. Yeah. I honestly, and I was just wondering what your reflection of it was. That's all. Yeah. I hope it changes. I think representation is a big part of the challenge. As long as it's uncommon to see a woman leading a public software company or a public tech company or a public company or a B2B company or a B2B startup or pick your poison, as long as that's uncommon, then there's going to be this curious reaction. And so we have to make that more commonplace. And we also have to, I think, be both empathetic to why people 
sort of approach me with that position first or a woman with that position first, but then also guide them down a more substantive path. Yeah. It reminds me, and this is not the same, but I always used to get really pissed off when people would say, how does it feel to be the youngest blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I'm like, that has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Like, I would get very competitive, Yes, you know, cause I'm like, that has literally nothing to do yes. with the performance. Like judge me based on my performance. Do not judge me based on anything else. Well, you're responding to an unconscious bias. I'm young. Therefore I must be inexperienced. Therefore I must be less. Correct. And so it's a really interesting lens to look through. And I think the world just gets better if we are all open to the unique value that every person brings, regardless of the intersectionality of where they've come from, their gender, their background, their educational background, et cetera. It gave me a chip on my shoulder. I suspect it gives you a bit of a chip on your shoulder. Well, it's funny because I'm like cresting. I went from always being the youngest person in the room, the only person in the room. Now I'm like the oldest person in the room and the only one. They're like, how has this happened that I'm still kind of the only? And I always tell my team and others, like, if you don't want to be the only, bring others. So I have amazing female leaders on my team. I have amazing underrepresented people on my team and my board. So I'm not the only. By my design, in my world, I'm not the only. But in my peer group, you know, there's still not enough Hayden Browns. There's not enough Yamini Rangans, not enough Safra Katzes. And that is a failing of the industry. Going back to when you were the youngest. So you graduated P&G, let's just say. Um, You went to a company called I2 Technologies to be the VP of global marketing. You spent four years there. Was that still in the States? Yeah, it was based in Dallas, Texas. So I lived in Southern California where I had moved with Procter & Gamble and commuted to Dallas, but I traveled all over the world. We were in massive growth mode. You know, we went from tens of millions to several billions of revenue while I was there. And it was the wild, wild west in a lot of ways. And I didn't start out as the VP of marketing. I went in as a marketing director and quickly got promoted. And I was definitely the youngest person in that room all the time. The youngest. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Then you went to What's this AA? Uh, how did, yeah, what, then I then I then I took a. What'd you do? I decided to leave and take a break, and I wanted to get into competitive offshore yacht racing. Can I interrupt you? <laughs> this is this is nine years into your career. This was like 2000, 2001. I have it two thousand and one two. two yeah, around two. then. Yeah. So, okay, it's almost ten years. Yeah. And so you're almost like about thirty. Yes. Thirty, thirty-one years old. Yes. Okay. And I had worked probably 100-hour work weeks for almost the entire four years Uh I was at A2. And I just wanted to, like, take a step back. And competitive sports has always been something that I've done, and I hadn't had time to do that with work. And so I got it in my head that I wanted to get into one design racing because you don't need to be a big person (laughs) to play an important role on a one design boat. To do that, like you need training and experience. And Australia is one of the best places in the world to build your sailing skills because there's a lot of water. It's an island. There's a lot of sailors. So I went to Australia to get my offshore skipper certification. I delivered a yacht by myself, three dudes I'd never, ever seen before from the top of Australia all the way to Sydney. It took like 29 days. I think we stopped twice. And I met my husband who was living in London at the time in the bar after a yacht race at the Sydney Yacht Club in Rushcutters Bay. And that's how I ended up sort of marooned on the island that is Australia. No kidding. Yes. First of all, that is an unbelievable (laughs) story. When you're making that decision, I put myself in your shoes and I would evaluate it 
from the perspective of opportunity cost. Yeah. Meaning you're coming off the heels of this great foundation at Procter & Gamble. Your resume then is continuing to be built after I2, where you have an amazing run. It seems like you got promoted a bunch of times. You're leaving as the VP of global marketing. I'm surprised to hear you make that decision as the overachiever that you strike me as, right? I mean, I'm just shocked that you didn't think about it in the way that I would, which is like, well, what about the next job? I just don't think achievement is purely measured through work and through titles. And I think losing my dad so early, he was 49 when he died. He was just kind of hitting his stride as a leader, as a CEO himself. And he was also just demonstrating that he had learned how to have fun and how to enjoy his life and enjoy his work. And I decided that there were things that I could achieve outside of work that were just as important in being a balanced and whole person. And I also think it helps to be incredibly independent. I've just always backed myself to land on my feet. And so while every man I ever work for always tells me, don't take a break, don't go sit on the beach, you'll never get recruited for the next amazing gig. And I've always found like, well, actually, I'm always a left field candidate anyway, because I don't look like every other dude that applied for every leadership job. So I might as well own that and spend my time doing things that I think enrich my life, not just my resume. And are you happy when you're doing this? Like when you step away, were you able to unwind? Well, I've done it a few times now. It takes me a little time to like disconnect. For the first couple of weeks that I was traveling in Australia, I had like a laptop, a camera, and a, probably a Palm Pilot or something in my backpack at the time, BlackBerry. Like I was still an executive, even though I didn't have any responsibilities except for a little board work. And I remember vividly like being on this boat out in the middle of nowhere And to be fair, like the only thing those three people on the boat cared about was, was I reliable? Did I know what I was doing? Was I going to crash the thing or kill them when I was on night watch? Like they could have given a shit whether I was an executive or had any money or where I came from or whatever. And at first there's a little bit of an identity crisis that comes with that, like, I'm Jennifer Tata. I'm the VP of this. I'm the CEO of that, blah, blah, blah. And then you realize like it's incredibly freeing. Like it's incredibly emancipating to be able to just be who you are in the moment and apply your mind and your body to a totally new challenge. And the thing that maybe surprised me the most was, you know, for that 28 days out, you know, us against nature. I did a lot of self-reflection and I took the time to sort of internalize what had I learned in my journey at I2, what was important to me, how important were those foundational skills at P&G, how important was my family, what role was I going to play going forward. I did not imagine I was going to be living overseas for the next decade. That was sort of a happy accident. But I think we move so fast from one thing to the next. It's like running past the buffet that we don't get a chance to enjoy things sometimes. So it gave me a chance to both savor the success that I've had, learn from my failures, but also try my hand at something totally different that required a different level of physical strength, a different level of mental focus, a very steep learning curve to not be the best at something, to be at the bottom of the learning curve again. Like I find that super motivating. 
and it made me a stronger, more confident person. Yeah. Do you find yourself getting wrapped up in the identity thing here again? Like, I'm Jennifer Todd. I'm the CEO of Pager. I try not to. It's hard here, though, isn't it? Especially in Silicon Valley. It's hard. Yes and no. I mean, my family keeps me really grounded. Like, they don't take any shit from me. Have a teenager. Yeah. They will also, like, Mom, you're not going to wear those pants, (laughs) are you? My husband is like, sometimes, you know, you're not CEO at home, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So... And my friends, like, uh, you know, I mean, I have some great friends. Being a working mom sometimes can be really hard because some of the parents who don't work won't include you in things because they just assume you're going to be busy and you can't come to something during the day. And I have a couple of friends who would be like, hey, you probably can't make it, but like just wanted to give you a heads up that this is happening and it might be good for you to be there or you know, hey, did you see the note that Sam's supposed to wear a blazer tomorrow? You know, things I would just never remember. And those people are real lifesavers for me, but they also keep me grounded to what's important in my life. And, you know, like I think about it a lot. Like if I weren't a CEO, I'm going to do something else great. What's interesting is that the next 10 years that you spend in Australia, you do a bunch of different types of jobs. You do M&A and corp dev. You're the COO of a company. (laughs) You were the CMO before, right? You kind of like go across the gamut. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself, I go back to this like identity crisis thing where people want to put you in the thing, whether that's a headhunter recruiting you for the next job, whether that's the things that you get invited to, whether that's the ladder of the career that you're building towards. I'm not a big fan of molds. Yeah, I can tell. It's hard to, I don't like to be put in a box. I think most people don't, but some people are will acquiesce more readily than others. For me, I saw it all as building blocks. And I like proving myself. I like it when someone says, oh, I don't think you'd be right for that. You'd never be able to do that. And I'm like, let's see. Yeah. Uh, sometimes that is your strength is often your weakness because sometimes I will over-rotate to the belief that I can figure anything out and maybe make a bad choice. But in that case, like, all of those experiences, like I've run almost every function in a business. It yeah. positions me really well to be good at what I think is the best fit for me ever in my career. The CEO job, because it's the integration of all these different pieces, it's being able to have a vision and look ahead and try and imagine what's around the corner and ready yourself for it. Being able to hire people who are smarter than you, who are expert at things you're not expert in, but you know, having the ability to put the chemistry of those different people together in a complimentary way. Like those are the things I love the most about my job. I love keeping score. I like being under pressure. I probably thrive. I always say pressure makes diamonds. I thrive under pressure. And so all those things prepared me for this. And the fact that like I was nobody in Australia, you go to Australia, it's a tiny country. They could give a crap what you did in the big, bad United States of America. Like you have to almost start over there. So it was also kind of an interesting exercise to have to reinvent myself in the Australian market. And then, you know, when I showed up here, it was funny because I remember I'd been back here in 2013 And someone in some article referred to me as a Silicon Valley insider, and I laughed. I'm like, well, they clearly haven't done any research because no one had heard of me when I came back because I'd been like off in the frontier, you know, for so long. Right. But I also, I love the Australian culture. It's a wonderful place to raise a family. It's a very innovative culture. These are people who have, I think, a better sense of work-life integration. Yeah. It's a stunning place to be outside and... The, yeah. the best moments in my lives are out in my life are outdoors. So, The only reason I ask about the identity thing is like sometimes I find myself going through something similar, meaning I had 
this great sales career and it was very linear and up and to the right. And then I came here and that was like weird and nobody knew why I was doing it. And then even here, it's like, well, I'm not an investor, so I don't get invited to the investor things, right? There is not really a job like mine in venture. Yeah. So I don't get invited to the dinners of the jobs like mine in venture, you know? Have you so, asked anybody so, to invite you? I'm also not good with like being told what to do. Like it fits me pretty well, generally speaking, but sometimes I have the identity crisis because I'm like, it's not like I want to be invited to the dinner, but it would be nice if sometimes it was easy to explain to someone, this is what I do in a nice, neat little package. And I just can't do that. I mean, I've never been able to describe my career in a nice, neat package. But again, like as someone who wrote a eulogy at 23, one of the great lessons there was that people don't remember what you did. They don't remember your title. They remember how you made them feel. And so... I don't know, I guess I just measure success in a different way. How much am I learning? How much impact am I having? How do I make the people around me feel? How do I help the people around me grow? How am I growing? I think it's totally fair. Then you go to Keynote and you become the CEO, right? CEO yeah. of that? CEO, I took the company private with a private equity firm. It was a public company. Got it. You spent two years doing that and then you joined PagerDuty. Yeah. To become the CEO. At the time, PagerDuty was a 30 million ARR company. Yeah. That was in August-ish of 2016. July, yeah. July of 2016. This company today has almost a thousand employees. Valuation today is almost 2 billion. Valuation a year ago was a lot higher. It's like one of the darlings of the Valley. It's an amazing company. Um, has raised all sorts of money, like projected revenue is going to be 365 to 370 million by the end of the year. It's pretty incredible. I guess I got to ask you, well, last Friday, today is whatever the date today is, November 8th. So November 3rd or 4th, you see some of your peers, the Twilio's of the world, dropping like crypto stocks. Like these are like 35% in a day. <laughs> and by the way, they've been getting crushed already. There's pressure there, I imagine. But I just would love to know your self-reflection on that. I think it's impossible to separate yourself from the sentiment of when things are going up and down. I am, I'm, my team would vouch for this. I don't watch the stock every day because when it moves in an erratic way, someone tells me anyway. But the company does. Uh, the company does and employees do. And I always say to our employees, like when we're up 20%, we're not 20% smarter. And when we're down 50%, we're not 50% dumber. Like the market is outside of our control and we have to stay focused on the long game. And, you know, you just went through the numbers. We've grown the company. We've improved operating leverage. You know, we've committed to the market that will be profitable for the full year next year and for Q4 this year. At the same time, we've continued to out-innovate everybody who's tried to compete with us. We have created two categories, on-call management and now digital operations, and we're fast becoming the operations cloud for the modern enterprise. I am very proud of what we've accomplished, and I think the numbers show it. The market will catch up eventually. And by the way, you know, I lived through the millennium. I was working then. <laughs> I was in a public company then. I was at a company in 2008 when that happened. And these are cycles. They have beginnings and they have ends and they have bumps and valleys. And I think about in 10 years from now, how durable and legendary will PagerDuty be as a company because of what we've done for our customers, because of the value we've created for our customers. And so I measure our success 
on how fast we're growing ROI, how quickly we can deliver value. Our time to value is measured in weeks and months, not years. Our payback period is two months. The ROI is 800% over three years, You know, an average of three to $4 million in savings every year. So I feel really good that our customers can articulate and quantify the value that we've created for them, that our users feel empathy and gratitude for PagerDuty, even though sometimes part of what we do is wake them up and orchestrate work to them and help them automate work in really difficult environments. And I feel incredibly privileged to be able to lead a phenomenal team and do a job that I love. And I know that every day that is an honor and a privilege and a responsibility. When you joined, was this the obvious choice? No. I mean, I, I looked at 50 growth companies before I took the pager duty job. And and did you quit then look? Yeah, I took time off. I've taken time, time off quit, between every quit, job. You, you quit? I have retired four or five times for a minimum of six months. Are you serious? Yes. I make better decisions when I am grounded in reality. I would also say that every time I did that, like after we sold Mincom, I took time off to be with my family and travel. After we sold Keynote, I took time off to really kind of reset and think about what did I want to do next? I mean, I've run companies in almost every asset class. I've done almost every executive job. I've gone public, gone private. Like, <laughs> And in between all of that, the thing I will ever be the most proud of is I've raised an incredible kid. I have an amazing, successful, funny husband. My husband is sort of the international man of mystery. I mean, he's far more interesting <laughs> than I am. And my family, I think, still likes me. My, my extended family sort of still likes me. And I have a few people that I can still call friends. And, yeah. you know, I'm giving back to some of the causes I care about. Like, if there's anything that I hunger for, it's seeing PagerDuty continue to live up to its potential, seeing my people go on to be CEOs and continue to change the in- industry faster than it's going to change on its own, and making sure that I'm living up to my own potential in having the biggest impact on the world that I can have in a positive way, to be a force for good. I read your second quarter in, you had made all of these changes to the business. You're not the founder of this company. So you no, come in. I'm the refinder. You're the re- <laughs> <laughs> What'd you call it? I'm the refinder. That's like right. I've adopted the company as if I found it myself. And Alex <laughs> and I have built a really beautiful partnership there. But I jump in like an adoptive parent. That's like right. I love this place as if I've been there since day one. That's right. You make these changes and you that take a pretty big miss your second quarter. We missed uh, the sort of whisper number. We didn't miss our guidance, okay. but I think we didn't manage expectations as well as we needed to. We had signaled to the market through our guidance that the growth was going to come down, that you know we had had some really heady growth in the lead up to the IPO. <laughs> they just didn't believe us. I think they thought we were sandbagging. We've proven since then that we are very much a do what we say company. Howard, our CFO and I have worked together for now nearly 15 years. And I made a ton of changes in transition, including taking the company public at quite a small scale, which was How a strategic was decision. This is just over a hundred. It was yeah. not big. I can't remember the actual number. But if you think about it, like Splunk had gone public at like 68 million in revenue. Back then, companies were going public at a little bit of smaller scale. That meant that we're still making some of these transitions as a growth company in the public eye. To me, 
that was worth the risk of doing it in public because we were making the transition from being kind of an SMB SaaS company that sold to other tech companies to being a true enterprise company. And one of the reasons we went public on the New York Stock Exchange was because we wanted to be aligned with our customers who were the largest enterprises in the world. And that strategy has played out very well. And the majority of our revenue now comes from enterprise. We're in some of the most highly regulated industries. Financial services has become a really great growth sector for us, but it was a painful period. And when you're early as a public company CEO and being a quite a responsible personality like I am, like you're really disappointed in yourself when the market isn't appreciative of your results or when the market is disappointed. I'm pretty thick skinned. But I've had to, you know, learn to just grind through that and demonstrate to the market that what we say we're going to do long term is what we've delivered on. And we have. This is you, the day of going public. <laughs> yes. And there's my 17-year-old Sam. That's uh, adorable. What is going through your head like right after this? Like, Shit, okay, you we ha- have a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> I told my team going public is like planning a wedding and there's like a big party and then you wake up the next morning and you're working on the marriage. You know, it's just, it's just a, we got to get back to work. But I think the most exciting thing about that time was seeing so many people, just the expressions in their face and their joy in experiencing an achievement that they didn't think was possible for themselves. Pager Duty was an underdog. No one thought that it would make it into the public markets. I joke, I'm you know six years into a three-year job. I think everybody thought I would, quote unquote, turn around Pager Duty and exit it to a bigger player. And from the very beginning, I've believed this was a platform, that there were some deep competitive technical moats that would serve us very well, and they have. Our proprietary data our philosophy and architecture and the way we focus first on users and second on companies as as our customers. The fact that we're focused on interrupt work, which is, I think, increasing as becoming the majority of the mix of work that we're doing. You know, the world used to be very structured and very predictable, and you could kind of trust your calendar as a good predictor of how you would spend your day. And increasingly, we're interrupted by one crisis after the next, by one set of unstructured, unpredictable, but high impact work after the next. And most of the tools and ticketing systems that are out there just don't serve interrupt work very well. You said something in passing a few minutes ago. You said (laughs) Uh um, you have a responsible personality. Can you explain that? I'm a big believer in 360 degree feedback and you know, over the years, and I learned this at PagerDuty, we've worked with industrial psychologists and folks to go through the 360 process and really be able to not only get feedback, but internalize a lot about ourselves. We've used everything from strength finders to the Enneagram. I'm like a serious eight in the Enneagram world for people who care about that. But one thing I've gotten feedback about over many, many years before I was a leader, even as an individual contributor, is that people appreciate that I am super conscientious and very responsible. And at the same time, I need to be aware of that because- You can be really hard on yourself. You can be really hard on yourself and you can kind of over-rotate on being too responsible. At some point in time, you need to let go of things or you need to hand those responsibilities over to others. You need to make sure that you're giving others opportunities and not leaving people behind because you're ahead of them and you're thinking, et cetera. And so that's something I know about myself. Mm -hmm. It's something that I work on 
as both a strength and an opportunity. Yeah. Do you find yourself beating yourself up being your own worst critic frequently or do you think you've gotten better? Over I'm getting time? better, but I am very hard on myself and I'm hard on the people that I love the most, that I have the most confidence in, that I have the most faith in. My team would tell you that. Like I have very high standards for my team, no higher than the standards I have for myself. I would never ask someone on my team to do something I wouldn't do. I like to be in the trenches with my team, but I also, yeah, I'm a hard driver. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. One of the things that was a consistent theme that I heard was that you're a hard driver, but you're consistent. Meaning, I don't often meet hard drivers that can also remain consistently hard driving. Yeah, my <laughs> my uh, husband says predictable is manageable. <laughs> I'm just really curious how you do that. How do you remain consistently hard driving? It's not like you're 100% hard driving yeah. all the time. I'm consistent in having a high standard. Mm. I think that is probably the nuance. Like I have this sort of internal philosophy that you're never done. The minute you think you're done, the minute you think you've mastered something, you've perfected something, then you're not growing anymore. Basketball was already at a high level before Michael Jordan turned up and then Kobe Bryant came and now, you know, we have Steph Curry. My ideal is that we should always be raising the bar. We should be celebrating when we achieve a milestone or overachieve a milestone, but then that's an opportunity to take it up a notch. I played golf in high school and college. And I remember when Tiger Woods came into the game and just brought this physicality and athleticism to golf that golf needed, not to mention representation and opening golf up to a community of people that hadn't had access or hadn't felt welcome in the past. Golf was fine before that. There were people who were at the top of the golf game then. And then you see Someone like Yo-Yo Ma on the cello, like there now there's a new Yo-Yo Ma. Like, I just think it's more about how do we continue to raise the standard and evolve the game as opposed to just trying to get to winning. We talk a lot, especially in my world, about founder-led companies. Statistically, the data says that over time, founder-led companies perform better. Data also says that over time, female-led companies and companies with women on the board perform better. The data better. also does say that. And, <laughs> and, and what I'm curious about is, do you think we've over-rotated towards this founder-led thing? Meaning, I was curious to hear from you, what advantages do you gain from not being... And when I say founder-led, I just mean the CEO of the company... And I know the co-founder, like they're still intimately involved in the business. Yeah. I just mean the CEO of the company not being a founder. Like, what do you gain from that? I think you gain outside perspective and experience. You know, it's sort of like how a coach or a teacher can look at your child and see things in your child you can't see because you're too close. And your child will listen to things that the coach or a teacher would tell them that they might not be willing to hear or internalize from you as a parent. So I do think like bringing someone in from the outside that has complimentary experiences can bring a big uplift to the business. But, you know, I'm a big believer in founder-led companies. Part of coming to PagerDuty was partnering with Andreessen and Bessemer, who had led the Series A and Series B respectively. And, you know, Andreessen was, I think, publicly out there as the founder friendly firm at the time. And so, you know, in fairness, they took a big bet on me, someone who was unknown, someone who was not a founder, but I do have quite a bit of experience in leadership transitions with founders. I've done it now at several companies. And you know, I think what has worked well for me is a model where I honor the past, like I honor the success and the story and 
the wherewithal that requires a founder to start something from zero. And, you know, I often remind the team, like, did any of you start something from the garage and get it to 30, 40 million? Like, no, <laughs> like we owe Alex, Andrew, Baskar, the co-founders of PagerDuty, a debt of gratitude. But this opportunity exists for us because of the risks they took, because of their resilience, their perseverance, their innovation, et cetera. So I actually think founders are incredible. And I try and surround myself. I have a crew of founder CEOs I hang around with. And I learn so much from the way they think about things because they have beginner's minds on stuff that, you know, I learned at Procter & Gamble 20 years ago and, you know, maybe think, there's a playbook that you should apply. And they're always questioning the playbook. So I think there's a benefit to both. I don't think, is it one or the other? I totally agree. I think you're starting to see more success cases in this world. Like uh, Mark Anderson, past guest of the show, now CEO of Alterx, doing a great job. Yeah. Doug Merritt, the Splunk CEO, did a great Yemini job. Yamini Rangan, HubSpot. Yep. Hayden Brown, Upworks. Yep. Mark Mader at Smartsheet. I think there are lots of, call it, pro CEOs that are far more than hired guns. I think we have to let old ideas lie and move beyond this idea of there's a certain archetype that's the best archetype. Because even those pro CEOs that I just mentioned, we're all really different leaders. We all have different backgrounds. We all come at it differently. And I would argue we all love our companies the way our founders did. It's funny because the argument that people would generally make is that if you're a founder, you can generally be more risk on with the company, you can make bigger bets with the company. And people would often point to someone like Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg to do that. And you look at that now and you're like, maybe, maybe that's a good thing. (laughs) You know, like maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Well, some of that is structural, right? I mean, some of that, like we don't have controlled shares, That's right. right? We don't have a dual share structure. So I do really have to consider our shareholders as key owners of the company and be open to their thinking, et cetera. So there are some structural advantages to potentially being a founder and a controlling owner of a company. And likewise, there are some advantages to having been around the block a few times and having deep experience from an operational perspective. Yeah, I mean, one of the places that I certainly notice a sense of relief that I have experiences in talent identification. You know, I remember when I first came on board, one of the things that Alex was really struggling with was like, how to identify talent? Because people are really good at interviewing. Like it, <laughs> it's really hard if you haven't hired and fired people for a living for years and haven't done it over and over again to be able to really find the right fit. And I think he was really relieved. That was one of the things he was like happy to not do was executive hiring when I came on board. Totally. When you joined the company was single product. It's now multi-product. Yes. How hard was that? Oh, it was a walk in the park. Um, <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's still a journey we're on. I think. I think that's one of the hardest things to do as a business is yeah. go from single to multi-product. Because it's not just a product. Totally. Thing. One of the reasons I chose PagerDuty, though, was it had all these platform esque native characteristics that I knew put it in a very good position to be a platform. One was the founders had been collecting data on events, on responders, on workflows since the very beginning. So we had this phenomenal proprietary data set that formed the basis of a foundational ML or AI model now. 
that I think will be one of the foundational models for using automation to help people work differently. That was there when I got here. We just weren't putting it to work. We were building new products all the time, but because incident response is so time sensitive, we had this belief that they need to be deeply integrated into a single core experience. And so we were monetizing that as one product. And what I initially set about doing was looking at what parts of the current deeply integrated product could be monetized separately or might have different use cases associated with them. So there were already some native multi-product tenants that were there. I didn't have to invent them all. What was maybe harder and what I underestimated was our name, like PagerDuty, like we're known for this one thing, notifications and alerting and paging people in the middle of the night when the shit's hitting the fan in the the infrastructure, the tech ecosystem. And I, like every other adult that ever heard of PagerDuty, immediately thought we should change that name overnight, set it in my first interview, set it in the next 10, set it for the first two years. And then what you find is it's a brand that is beloved by the developer community and trusted deeply. And so it wasn't as simple as like, let's go change it. There may come a time when the name holds us back, but Salesforce isn't holding Salesforce back. International business machines didn't seem to hold IBM back. There are stranger or similarly weird names out there. But that I underestimated how hard it would be to move people from recalling and remembering and thinking of us for what we first became famous for versus what we do now because that brand is so well understood. Yeah. So that journey is the journey we're on. And I'm thrilled to have Catherine Calvert as our CMO, as a partner. Can I ask about something maybe a little bit more sensitive on? I'm sure. Yeah. I feel like we I might not answer it, but let's go. The, the, <laughs> the, um, a couple of months ago, I was reading an article, I think about your reflection of an employee that you lost. Felicia Jones. Is that right? PJ. PJ. Are you okay talking about that? You emceed the funeral. Yeah. Celebration of life. But yeah, let's try. Let's see if I can keep it together. I have talked to several executives at PagerDuty who said that she was the first person that they spoke to when they were interviewing, when they joined. She was just a ray of light at this company. I spent over four years, if I'm not mistaken, at the organization, really standing for all the values that PagerDuty wanted to represent. Why did you decide to MC the celebration of life? You know, back to responsibility-centric leadership, her family asked me to, and I would not ever say no. Um, I was with PJ and her family when she passed away. And I mean, we were all very close to her. I think everybody uh, at the company, every Dutonian, because PJ ran talent development and led onboarding and was so present in all of our careers and in all of our experiences and such a champion for people, we all felt deeply connected and, you know, just feel, I think, a unfathomable loss to lose somebody so vibrant and so incredibly smart, very high EQ, so lively and such an intrinsic leader. I mean, this is someone who is born to lead, born to change, she was demanding and sometimes obnoxious in asking me for things. She deeply believed that PagerDuty could be the best company in the world, not just for the majority, but for underrepresented people. She was essentially the co-founder of our Black ERG group, which she 
had me very connected into. And she really felt like it was her job to bring out the best in people at pager duty. And I just couldn't imagine, you know, not doing everything I could to try and help her family and her friends and our employees through the process of just even coming to terms with her loss, much less trying to celebrate a life that was so incredible, even for the short time she was on this earth. And when this happened, did you go into a similar supporting mode as you did when you were 23? Uh, Yeah, I think although I was much more vulnerable and open to letting people see how I felt. How so? Well, it was quite sudden. I mean, she was sick and then was hospitalized and then was gone within a handful of days. And she passed away on a Sunday. And on Monday morning, we had to communicate to the company what had happened. And so we held some reflection sessions, just some sessions on Zoom because we're all remote to honor her. And I couldn't keep it together for most of that. I mean, one of the things that I did differently was to write about her because we had to notify the community around us as to what had happened and to try and honor her and her family's memory. And that was cathartic, you know, in a lot of ways. And then I guess being with her family helped me to feel closer to her in the process and deal with my own grief, which I'm still, still hard. In these moments, um, what do you do to fill your cup when you have such a responsibility for others, her family, the pager duty community? There's so many people that are involved. What do you do? Some of it is just giving myself time and grace, I, you know, kind of letting up on those standards for a few moments a day. And I'm getting better at letting people help me. I didn't realize for a long time, I used to think like, well, if you need help, that's weakness. But people actually like to help other people. And, you know, my team was great. A lot of them reached out to see how I was. We have a super empathetic culture and that was a huge support to me. My family, you know, were with me the whole time and gave me time and space at home. But I'm not going to lie. I'm having a hard time with it. Every I'm going into the office after this, and every time I walk into the office, there are just little reminders that makes it hard. I kind of have to brace myself. Yeah. Do you know Emily Choi at Coinbase? Yeah. She shared a story with me about when I think her, her father passed away. And she's similar in the sense that vulnerability is not something that comes, that's not her natural state. What she was saying was after that happened, she wrote a letter to the company, an email, and was extremely raw and vulnerable about how she felt. And she said it was maybe the most productive, useful, connected thing she could possibly have ever done as a leader. And she got so many notes saying like, wow, that's incredible. And I read your note. Um, I think you posted it, right? It was really special. And I imagine there was a quite a positive, overwhelming response for people coming, wanting to help you. Is that fair? One of our values is run together. Mm-hmm. And it was definitely a moment in PagerDuty's history where 
we all came together for each other. I'm not really sure where else to go, honestly, after this one. Um, I, uh, yeah, I could probably just wrap it. I always ask the same kind of sets of questions at the end. The first question is about grit. And you spoke to Stanford. <laughs> the podcast was about resilience and grit. I listened to it. It was really good. So when you get invited to this Stanford podcast, like all the greats get invited to this thing. I imagine it was a great honor when, when you heard that you're, it's entrepreneurial thought leader, yeah. right? And all the amazing, incredible leaders have all gone through this. And I imagine you were trying to decide a topic. Why'd you decide on resilience and grit? Because there isn't a class on it. Like it's not subject matter that is made available to learners in any institution. And yet it is a requirement in my view for success in any industry. Well, you know, if you want to stand out and you want to be one of the most successful leaders of your time, successful developers, innovators, you know, pick your role, whether it's an individual or a team leader, grit's a requirement because it's never going to be perfect. And most people advance in their careers because they solve problems, not because they inherit perfectly running, shiny, beautiful things. I've made a career out of fixing things, changing things, evolving things, growing things, etc. And so I just feel like it's a gap in the world's curriculum. And not everybody has an equal opportunity to practice resilience, to develop grit. Not everybody understands how valuable it is. So I wanted to start the dialogue. And I love being in classrooms. I guess guest dialoguing at Wharton with William Lauder in his leadership class again in January. And, you know, what I remember about being in college was hating dry lectures and hating experts who would come in and talk down to me and instead wanted to engage in a conversation about something that could be constructive and useful. And so I just think that grit and resilience are something that not unlike self-awareness and intellectual curiosity and empathy that like we don't have classes on, but people who have it just are head and shoulders above the people who don't in terms of their ability to grow, their elasticity as leaders, their ability to create followerships, their ability to think disruptively. Do you believe it can be taught? I think like anything else, you can create more awareness around it. You can help people self-assess where they could are. Could you teach your daughter? Oh yeah, I have. I mean, I've taught her to be self-reliant and independent and gritty. Like and Just like you feel like your dad let, and mom taught you. We let her fail. You know, we watch her fail. We stand back with our hands in our pockets, wanting desperately to help her and we let her fail. And she picks herself up. It enables her to prove to herself that she can come back from a big failure. And that confidence is so important. It's even more important for girls. That self-confidence, that ability to know that if, even if things don't go well, I can pick myself up, brush myself off, and maybe be better, maybe get on with it. It's incredible. Are you hiring? Is PagerDuty hiring? We are hiring. Are there any key roles that you want to shout <laughs> yeah. out? Ooh, yes. Um, let's this see. is your opportunity. We're looking for a phenomenal communications leader, a VP of communications, and a great corporate marketing person. We've just hired a number of executives. We're always hiring developers. We have a lot of open roles in Lisbon, Portugal. 
Fine. where I was last week. And Jarrell Fritas, who's leading the office there, is just an incredible leader. The leaders are going to be pissed if you don't shout them out. Well, he just you? placed a VP of the VP of partners. We actually have been filling a lot of roles oh, good. of late. Talents, it's good. It's good for talent right now. It is now. really good for talent. And, you know, I'm really pleased. We've kind of maintained a high standard and continued to bring great people into the business, but also retain a lot of people who are really important to us and continue to help people grow their careers inside PagerDuty. And if you're listening and any of those roles are appealing to you, figure out how to get a hold of Jen. Jennifer at PagerDuty.com. It's super easy. Okay. Or go to the careers page and see if there's something else that might suit your fancy. Yeah. If you want to be part of a culture that is innovative and empathetic, a place that is diverse and very customer focused, championing the customer is our top value. And you want to build cool stuff. It's a great place to work and you can live just about anywhere. (laughs) Jen Tejada, it's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. 